0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. This episode contains themes of suicide and not for little ears. The Room in the Tower by Edwig Frederick Benson It is probable that everybody who was at all a constant dreamer has had at least one experience of an event or a sequence of circumstances which have come to his mind in sleep, being subsequently realized in the material world. But in my opinion, so far from this being a strange thing, it would be far odder if this fulfillment did not occasionally happen, since our dreams are, as a rule, concerned with people whom we know and places with which we are familiar, such as might very naturally occur. In the awake and daylight world. True, these dreams are often broken into by some absurd and fantastic incident which puts them out of court in regard to their subsequent fulfillment, but on the mere calculation of chances, it does not appear in the least unlikely that a dream imagined by anyone who dreams constantly should occasionally come true. Not long ago, for instance, I experienced such a fulfillment of a dream which seems to me in no way remarkable and to have no kind of physical significance. The manner of it was as follows A certain friend of mine, living abroad, is amiable enough to write to me about once in a fortnight. Thus, when fourteen days or thereabouts have elapsed since I last heard from him, my mind probably either consciously or subconsciously, is expectant of a letter from him. One night last week, I dreamed that I was going upstairs to dress for dinner. I heard, as I often heard, the sound of the postman's knock on my front door and diverted my direction downstairs instead. There, among other correspondence, was a letter from him. Thereafter, the fantastic entered, for on opening it I found inside the Ace of Diamond, and scribbled across it in his well-known handwriting, I'm sending you this for safe custody, and you know it is running an unreasonable risk to keep aces in Italy. The next evening, I was just preparing to go upstairs to dress, when I heard the postman's knock and did precisely as I had done in my dream. There, among other letters, was one from my friend. Only... It did not contain the Ace of Diamonds. Had it done so, I should have attached more weight to the matter. Seems to me a perfectly ordinary coincidence. No doubt I consciously or subconsciously expected a letter from him and this suggested to me my dream. Similarly, the fact my friend had not written to me for a fortnight suggested to him that he should do so. But occasionally it is not so easy to find such an explanation." And for the following story, I can find no explanation at all. It came out of the dark, and into the dark, it has gone again. All my life, I've been a habitual dreamer. The nights are few, that is to say, when I do not find on awaking in the morning that some mental experience has been mine, and sometimes all night long. Apparently, a series of the most dazzling adventures befall me. Almost without exception, These adventures are pleasant, though often merely trivial. It is of an exception that I am going to speak. It was when I was about sixteen that a certain dream first came to me, and this is how it befell. It opened with my being set down at the door of a big red brick house, where I understood I was going to stay. The servant who opened the door told me that tea was being served in the garden, and led me through a low dark paralleled hall, with a large open fireplace onto a cheerful green lawn set round with flower beds. There were, grouped about, the tea table a small party of people, but they were all strangers to me except one, with the schoolfellow called Jack Stone, clearly the son of the house, and he introduced me to his mother and father and a couple of his sisters. I was, I remember, somewhat astonished to find myself here, For the boy in question was scarcely known to me and i rather disliked what i knew of him moreover he had left school nearly a year before the afternoon was very hot and an intolerable oppression reigned on the far side of the lawn ran a red brick wall with an iron gate in its center outside which stood a walnut tree we sat in the shadow of the house opposite a row of long windows inside which i could see a table with cloth laid glimmering with glass and silver. This garden front of the house was very long, and at one end of it stood a tower of three stories, which looked to me much older than that of the rest of the building. Before long, Mrs. Stone, who, like the rest of the party, had sat in absolute silence, said to me, Jack will show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower. Quite inexplicably, my heart sank at her word. I felt as if I had known that I should have that room in the tower and that it contained something dreadful and significant. Jack instantly got up, and I understood that I had to follow him. In silence, we passed through the hall and mounted a great oak staircase with many corners and arrived at the small landing with two doors set in it. He pushed one of these open for me to enter, and without coming in himself, closed it after me. Then I knew that my conjecture had been right. There was something awful in the room, in with the terror of nightmare growing swiftly and enveloping me. I awoke in a spasm of terror. Now that dream or variations on it occurred to me intermittently for fifteen years, Most often it came in exactly this form. The arrival, the tea laid out on the lawn. The deadly silence, succeeded by that one deadly sentence. The mounting with Jack Stone up to the room, in the tower where horror dwelt. And it always came to a close, in the nightmare of terror at that which was in that room, though I never saw what it was. At other times I experienced variations on this same theme. Occasionally, for instance, we would be sitting at dinner in the dining room, into the windows of which I had looked on the first night when the dream of this house visited me. But wherever we were, there was the same silence, the same sense of dreadful oppression and foreboding, and the silence I knew would always be broken by Mrs. Stone saying to me, Jack, Jack will show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower, upon which this was invariable. I had to follow him up to the oak staircase with many corners and enter the place that I dreaded more and more each time that I visited it in my sleep. Or again, I would find myself playing cards, still in silence, in a drawing room lit with immense chandeliers that give a blinding illumination. But what the game was, I have no idea. What I remember, with a sense of miserable anticipation, was that soon Mrs. Stone would get up and say to me, Jack will show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower. This drawing room, where we played cards, was next to the dining room, and as I have said, was always brilliantly illuminated whereas the rest of the house was full of dusk and shadows. And yet, how often, in spite of those bouquets of light, have I not poured over the cards that were dealt to me, scarcely able for some reason to see them. Their designs, too, were strange. There were no red suits, but all were black, and among them there were certain cards which were black all over. I hated and dreaded those. As this dream continued to recur, I got to know the greater part of the house. There was a smoking room beyond the drawing room, at the end of a passage with a green baize door. It was always very dark there, and as often as I went there I passed somebody whom I could not see in the doorway coming out. Curious developments, too, took place in the characters that people the dream as might happen to live to living personas. Mrs. Stone, for instance, who, when I first saw her, had been black-haired became grey, and instead of rising briskly, as she had done at first, when she said, Jack will show you your room, I have given the room in the tower, got up very feebly, as if their strength was leaving her limbs. Jack also grew up, and became a rather ill-looking young man, with a brown moustache, while one of the sisters ceased to appear, and I understood She was married. Then it so happened that I was not visited by this dream for six months or more and I began to hope in such inexplicable dread did I hold it that I had passed away for good. But one night after this interval I again found myself being shown out onto the lawn for tea and Mrs. Stone was not there while the others were all dressed in black. At once I guessed the reason, and my heart leapt at the thought that perhaps this time I should not have to sleep in the room in the tower, and though we usually all sit in silence, on this occasion the sense of relief made me talk and laugh, as I had never yet done. But even then matters were not altogether comfortable, for no one else spoke, but they all looked secretly at each other. And soon... The foolish stream of my talk ran dry, and gradually, an apprehension worse than anything I had previously known gained on me, as the light slowly faded. Suddenly, a voice which I knew well broke the stillness. The voice of Mr. Stone saying, Jack, we'll show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower. It seemed to come from near the gate in the red brick wall that bounded the lawn, and looking up, I saw that the grass outside was sown thick. It seemed to come from near the gate in the red brick wall that bounded the lawn, and looking up I saw that the grass outside was sown thick with gravestones. A curious greyish light shone from them, and I could read the lettering on the grave nearest me, and it was, In In Evil Memory memory of of Julia Stone. Stone. And as usual, Jack got up and again I followed him through the hall and up the staircase with many corners. On this occasion, it was darker than usual and when I passed into the room in the tower, I could only see the furniture, the position of which was already familiar to me. Also, there was a dreadful odour of decay in the room and I awoke screaming. The dream with such variations and developments as I have mentioned, went on at intervals for 15 years. Sometimes I would dream it two or three nights in succession once, as I have said. There was an intermission of six months, but taking a reasonable average I could say that I dreamed it quite as often as once in a month. It had, as is plain, something of nightmare about it, since it always ended in the same appalling terror, which, so far from getting less, seemed to me to gather every time I experienced it. There was, too, a strange and dreadful consistency about it. The characters in it, as I have mentioned, got regularly older, death and marriage, visited this silent family, and I never, in the dream, after Mrs. Sone had died, set eyes on her again. But it was always her voice that told me that the room in the tower was prepared for me. And whether we had tea out on the lawn, or the scene was laid in one of the rooms overlooking it, I could always see her gravestone standing just outside the iron gate. It was the same too, with the married daughter. Usually she was not present, but once or twice she returned again. In company with a man, whom I talked to be her husband, he, too, like the rest of them, was always silent. I had ceased to attach, in my waking hours, anything, any significance to it. I never met Jack Stone again during all those years, nor did I ever see a house that resembled this dark house of my dream. And then, something happened. I had been in London in this year, up till the end of the July, and during the first week in August, went down to stay with a friend in a house he had taken for the summer months, in the Ashtown Forest district of Sussex. I left London early for John Clinton was to meet me at Forest Row station, and we were going to spend the day golfing, and go to his house in the evening. He had his motor with him, and we set off, about five in the afternoon. As a After a thoroughly delightful day for the drive, the distance being some ten miles, as it was still so early we did not have tea at the clubhouse, but waited till we should get home. As we drove, the weather, which up till then had been though hot, deliciously fresh, seemed to me to alter in quality, and became very stagnant and oppressive, and I felt that indefinable sense of ominous apprehension that I am accustomed to before thunder. John, however, did not share my views, attributing my loss of lightness to the fact that I had lost both my matches. Events proved, however, that I was right, though I did not think that the thunderstorm that broke that night was the sole cause of my depression. Our way lay through deep, high bank lanes, and before we had gone very far, I fell asleep, and was only awakened by the stopping of the motor, and with a sudden thrill, partly of fear, but chiefly of curiosity. I found myself standing in the doorway of my house of dream. We went, I half wondering whether or not I was dreaming still, through a low oak-panelled hall and out onto the lawn, where tea was laid in the shadow of the house. It was set in the flower beds, a red brick wall with a gate in it, bounded one side, and out beyond that was a space of rough grass with a walnut tree. The facade of the house was very long, and at one end stood a three-story tower, markedly older than the rest. Here, for the moment, all resemblance to the repeated dream ceased. There was no silent and somehow terrible family, but a large assembly of exceedingly cheerful persons, all of whom were known to me. And in spite of the horror with which the dream itself had always filled me, I felt nothing of it now that the scene of it was thus reproduced before me. But I felt intense curiosity as to what was going to happen. Tea pursued its cheerful course, and before long Mrs. Clinton got up, and at that moment I think I knew what she was going to say. She spoke to me, and what she said was, Jack will show you your room. I have given you the room in the tower. At that for half a second, the horror of the dream took hold of me again but it quickly passed. And again, I felt nothing more than the most intense curiosity. It was not very long before it was amply satisfied. John turned to me. Right up at the top of the house, he said. But I think you'll be comfortable. We're absolutely full up. By Jove, I believe that you are right and that we're going to have a thunderstorm. How dark it has become. I got up and followed him. We passed through the hall, and up the perfectly familiar staircase. Then he opened the door and I went in. And at that moment, sheer unreasoning terror again possessed me. I did not know what I feared, I simply feared. Then, like a sudden recollection, when one remembers a name which has long escaped the memory, I knew what I feared. I feared Mrs. Stone, whose grave with the sinister inscription... In evil memory, I had so often seen in my dream just beyond the lawn which lay below my window. And then once more the fear passed so completely that I wondered that there was to fear. And I found myself sober and quiet and sane in the room in the tower, the name of which I had so often heard in my dream. And the scene of which was so familiar. I looked around it with a certain sense of proprietorship and found that nothing had been changed from the dreaming nights in which I knew it so well. Just to the left of the door was the bed, lengthways along the wall, with the head of it in the angle. In a line with it was the fireplace and the small bookcase. Opposite the door, the outer wall was pierced by two lattice-paned windows, between which stood the dressing table, while ranged along the fourth wall was the washing stand and a big cupboard. My luggage had already been unpacked, for the furniture of dressing and undressing lay orderly on the washstand and toilet table, while my dinner clothes were spread out on the coverlet of the bed, and then, with a sudden start of unexplained dismay, I saw that there were two rather conspicuous objects which I had not seen before in my dreams. One a life-sized oil painting of Mrs. Stone, the other a black-and-white sketch of Jack Stone representing him as he had appeared to me only a week before in the last of the series of these repeated dreams. A rather secret and evil-looking man of about 30, his picture hung between the windows, looking straight across the room to the other portrait, which hung at the side of the bed. At that I looked next, and as I looked I felt once more the horror of nightmare seize me. It represented Mrs. Stone as I had seen her last in my dreams, old and withered and white-haired. But in spite of the evident feebleness of body, a dreadful exuberance and vitality shone through the envelope of flesh, an exuberant, holy malign, a vitality that foamed and frothed with unimaginable evil, evil beamed from the narrow leering eyes. It laughed in a demon-like mouth. The whole face was instinct with some secret and appalling mirth. The hands clasped together on the knee seemed shaking with suppressed and nameless glee. Then I saw also that it was signed in a left handed bottom corner, and wondering who the artist could be, I looked more closely and read the inscription Julia Stone by Julia Stone. There came a tap at the door, and John Clinton entered. Got everything you want? He asked. Rather more than I want, said I, pointing to the picture. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> Hard featured old lady. By herself too, I remember. Anyhow, she kind of flattered herself much. But don't you see? It's scarcely a human face at all. It's the face of some witch or some devil. He looked at it more closely. Yes, it isn't very pleasant. Scarcely a bedside manner, eh? Yes, I can imagine getting the nightmare if I went to sleep with that close by my bed. I'll have it taken down if you like. I really wish you would, I said. He rang the bell and with the help of a servant, we detached the picture and carried it out onto the landing and put it with its face to the wall. By Wait, Jove! So the old lady has a weight, weight, said John, mopping his forehead. I, I wonder if she had something, something on her mind. her mind. The extraordinary weight of the picture has struck me too. I was about to reply when I caught sight of my own hand. There was blood on it, in considerable quantities covering the palm. I've cut myself somehow, said I. John gave a little startled exclamation. Why, I have too, he said. Simultaneously, the footman took out his handkerchief and wiped his hand with it. I saw that there was blood also on his handkerchief. John and I went back into the tower room and washed the blood off. But neither of his hand nor of mine was there the slightest trace of a scratch or cut. It seemed to me that, having ascertained this, we both, by a sort of tacit consent, did not allude to it again. Something in my case had dimly occurred to me that I did not wish to think about. It was but a conjecture, but I fancied that I knew the same thing had occurred to him. The heat and oppression of the air, for the storm we had expected was still undischarged. Increased very much after dinner, and for some time, most of the party, among whom were John Clinton and myself, sat outside on the path bounding the lawn, where we had had tea. The night was absolutely dark, and no twinkle of star or moon ray could penetrate the pall of cloud that overset the sky. By degrees, our assembly thinned. The women went up to bed, Men dispersed to the smoking or billard room, and by eleven o'clock my host and I were the only two left. All the evening I thought that he had something on his mind, and as soon as we were alone... The man who helped us with the picture had blood on his hand too. Did you notice? He said. I asked him just now if he had cut himself, and he said he supposed he had. But... that that he he could could find find no mark of it. it. Now, Now, where did that blood come come from? By dint of telling myself that I was not going to think about it, I had succeeded in not doing so, and I did not want, especially just at bedtime, to be reminded of it. I don't don't know, said I, and I don't really care so long as the picture of Mrs. Stone is not by my bed. He got up. Uh, But it's odd, He said, (laughs) Now, you'll see another odd thing. A dog of his, an Irish terrier by breed, had come out of the house as we talked. The door behind us into the hall was open, and a bright oblong of light shone across the lawn to the iron gate, which led to the rough grass outside, where the walnut tree stood. His lips were curled back from his teeth, as if he were ready to spring at something. And he was growling to himself. He took not the slightest notice of his master or me, but stiffly and tensely walked across the grass to the iron gate. There he stood for a moment, looking through the bars and still growling. Then, all of a sudden, his courage seemed to desert him. He gave one long howl and scuttled back to the house with a curious crouching sort of movement. He does that half a dozen times a day, said John. He sees something which he both hates and fears. I walked to the gate and looked over it. Something was moving on the grass outside, and soon a sound which I could not innocently identify came to my ears. Then I remember what it was. It was the purring of a cat. I lit a match and saw the purrer, a big blue Persian, walking round and round in a little circle just outside the gate, stepping high and ecstatically, with tail carried aloft like a banner. Its eyes were bright and shining, and every now and then, it put its head down and sniffed at the grass. I laughed. (laughs) The end of that mystery, I'm afraid. Here's a large cat having Walpurgis night all alone. Yes, that's Darius, said John. He spent half a day and all night there. But that's not the end of the dog mystery, for Toby and he are the best of friends. But the beginning of the cat mystery, what's the cat doing there? And why is Darius pleased, while Toby is terror-stricken? At that moment, I remembered the rather horrible detail of my dreams when I saw through the gate just where the cat was now, the white tombstone, with the sinister inscription... But before I could answer, the rain began, as suddenly and heavenly as if a tap had been turned on, and simultaneously, the big cat squeezed through the bars of the gate and came leaping across the lawn to the house for shelter. Then it sat in the doorway, looking out eagerly in the dark. It spat and struck at John with its paw as he pushed it in in order to close the door. Somehow, With the portrait of Julia Stone in the passage outside, the room in the tower had absolutely no alarm for me. And as I went to bed, feeling very sleepy and heavy, I had nothing more than an interest for the curious incident about our bleeding hand and the conduct of the cat and dog. The last thing I looked at before I put out my light was a square empty space by the bed where the portrait had been. Here, the paper was of its original full tint of dark red, Over the rest of the walls, it had faded. Then I blew out my candle and instantly fell asleep. My waking was equally instantaneous, and I sat bolt upright in bed under the impression that some bright light had been flashed in my face. Though it was now absolutely pitch dark, I knew exactly where I was, in the room which I had dreaded in dreams. But no horror that I ever felt when asleep approached the fear that now invaded and froze my brain. Immediately after, a peal of thunder crackled just above the house. But the probability that it was only a flash of lightning which awoke me gave no reassurance to my galloping heart. Something I knew was in the room with me, and instinctively I put out my right hand, which was nearest the wall, to keep it away, and my hand touched the edge of a picture frame hanging close to me. I sprang out of bed, upsetting the small table that stood by it, and I heard my watch, candle, and matches clatter onto the floor. But for the moment, there was no need of light, for a blinding flash leaped out of the clouds and showed me that my bed again hung the picture of Mrs. Stone, and instantly the room went into blackness again. But in that flash, I saw another thing also, namely a figure that leaned over the edge of my bed, watching me. It was dressed in some close clinging white garment, spotted and stained with mould and the face was that of the portrait. Overhead the thunder cracked and roared, and when it ceased and the deathly stillness succeeded, I heard the rustle of movement coming nearer me and more horribly yet, perceived an odour of corruption and decay. And then a hand was laid out on the side of my neck and close behind my ear I heard quick taken, eager breathing. Yet I knew that this thing, though it could be perceived by touch, by smell, by eye, and by ear, was still not of this earth, but something that had passed out of the body and had power to make itself manifest. Then a voice, already familiar to me, spoke. I knew you You would come to the room in the tower. It said, I have have been long long waiting waiting for you. you. At last last you have come. come. Tonight I shall feast. Before long we will feast together." And the quick breathing came closer to me. I could feel it on my neck. At that, the terror, which I think had paralyzed me for the moment, gave way to the wild instinct of self-preservation. I hit wildly with both arms, kicking out at the same time and heard a little animal squeal and something soft dropped with a thud beside me. I took a couple of steps forward, nearly tripping up over whatever it was that lay there, and by the merest good luck found the handle of the door. In another second, I ran out on the landing, and had banged the door behind me. Almost at the same moment, I heard a door open somewhere below, and John Clinton, candle in hand, came running upstairs. "'What is it?' he said. "'I I sleep just just below you, you and I heard a noise as if, if, "'Good heavens!' There's blood on your shoulder! I stood there. So he told me afterwards, swaying from side to side, white as a sheet, with a mark on my shoulder as if a hand covered with blood had been laid there. It's in there, I said, pointing. She, you know. The portrait is in there, too, hanging up on the place we took it from. At that, he laughed. (laughs) My (laughs) My dear dear fellow, this this is is a a mere nightmare, nightmare, he said. He pushed by me and opened the door. I, standing there simply inert with terror, unable to stop him, unable to move. Phew, what an awful smell, he said. Then there was silence and he passed out of my sight behind the open door. Next moment it came out again as white as myself, and innocently shut it. Yes, the portrait's there. And on the floor is a thing. A thing spotted with earth. Like what they bury people in. Come away, quick. Come away. How I got downstairs, I hardly know. An awful shuddering and nausea of the spirit rather than of the flesh had seized me. And more than once, he had to place my feet upon the steps. While every now and then, he cast glances of terror and apprehension up the stairs. But in time, we came to this dressing room on the floor below. And there I told him what I have here described. The sequel can be made short. Indeed, some of my readers have perhaps already guessed what it was. If they remember that inexplicable affair of the churchyard at West Forley. Some eight years ago, where an attempt was made three times to bury the body of a certain woman who had committed suicide. On each occasion, the coffin was found in the course of a few days, again protruding from the ground. After the third attempt, in order that the thing should not be talked about, the body was buried elsewhere in unconcentrated ground. Where it was buried was just outside the iron gate of the garden belonging to the house where this woman had lived. She had committed suicide in a room at the top of the tower in that house her name was julia stone subsequently the body was again secretly dug up and the coffin was found to be full of blood good day you living legends you yes you the listener thank you for taking the time to listen Today's episode is such a classic written by Edward Frederick Benson in 1867 with the very early days of possession, vampirism, and blood lore. That's why I called this one the Blood Engorged Coffin, aka Bloodomancy. Initially I thought this was going to be a Dorian Gray sort of tale, then as I read it I realised that this was so blood magic infused with a touch of animal metamorphism and mysticism. Goodness, what a read and a tongue twister, and I hope you all enjoyed it. For all my patrons, you get to see today's artwork for the episode. Oh yeah, coffins, blood everywhere, and all sorts of awesome nasty jazz. Brought to you by Artificial Intelligence. Now, I want to take the time to thank my superstars, those that support me through Patreon, which is a donation-based service that keeps the lights on and the podcast machine turning. First, I'm blessed to have the god tier supporter, Matto Superstar Power, at the Ode Night T Titan tier. Another tongue twister. Good sir and good friend, all of today's episode was sponsored by your support. And I was able to really twist and turn the audio in certain places to make it shine using the RX9 software. I've also used a couple of key plugins that I wouldn't otherwise have access to to create a really unique listening experience. And I used that support to purchase some Razer Barracuda headphones so that I could closely listen to the audio. This means that I'll be cutting back more and more of the reverb Better quality headphones, better quality audio. Producing a more top-notch episode with really cleanly cut audio. I hope you're noticing it bit by bit. Every episode, it gets that little bit better. Thank you, mate. You are a legend of gigantic proportions. What a superstar you are, Matto. Cannot thank you enough, mate. And my white-tea-warlord, Saurus rex Mate, thanks to you, I have access to pan-management which is essentially a phasing tool that I can implement inside my audio. What does it do? It helps me shift and alternate left to right channels and do some really complex neural audio planning. There are some hiccups with the tool as it can be difficult to use, but it produces realistic positional audio. So when someone drops a pin to your left of your ear or drops, you know, a matchstick to your right, it can actually almost replicate it in real life. Not 100% there, but I'm getting there. Whilst a lot of other tools don't even come close to replicating that at all. So the phase shifting from left to right channel and the audio sneaking into your ear is all pan management's doing. Thank you, Lesa, for being so darn amazing and giving me access to tools like that. Cheers. You're awesome. And of course, the superstars that put a belt in my step every Monday, I'm lucky to have these people supporting me Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli. Michelangelo Yacone Divided by Zero, Leah Fasig, Elia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Also this goes out to all Patreon supporters. If you want to have a picture of yourself turned into a portrait, or you'd like some unique artwork, just for fun, reach out to me via Patreon, as all patrons can cast their vote in my Patreon page poll, another tongue twister, But you also have my ear when it comes to creating unique art just for you. For anyone interested in becoming a Patreon and becoming a legend, (laughs) and having access to high-quality audio episodes, mid-journey artwork, and a weekly mid-journey poll, visit www.patreon/sfgt.com and become a legend. Now, when you find that right story, the one that's hunky-dory, the page that strikes you deeply, where the feeling resides sweetly. It's the storyteller's job to bring those thoughts to life, and I'm thankful for the time you spent and my chance to spark that light. Thank you, you amazing listeners, my friends and my supporters alike, for your time today and the next. Until next time, good night.